Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and co-host sometimes with Mari. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress in the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV. She's been on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and many more shows. And in fact, last year she had her own 90-minute PBS television special, which they aired again this year. Uh, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash piracy, privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Can't you say that yet? Uh, I'll figure it out one day. <laughs> we are so lucky. We have a great show tonight coming all the way from Columbus, Ohio. Remember when I went to Columbus, Ohio? What a fun place. That's Ohio State University, and I had to do a program for the Chiefs of Police in Ohio. I missed that trip. That was fun. I stayed at the Adams Mark Hotel, and it was uh, freezing, <laughs> but it was fun. Anyway, we have a super guest tonight. We have a, the Chief Privacy Officer for Nationwide Insurance Companies. His name is Kirk Harris, and Kirk heads up a team that has primary sp- responsibility for corporate privacy policy, and they work on all sorts of privacy issues across the lines of the business. He represents Nationwide's interests in many industry groups and business groups, and he testifies before the legislature and, uh, and probably in Ohio and as well, I know, in, in Congress. And he deals with regulatory bodies as well. He is the primary attorney at Nationwide who works on privacy issues, and he deals with information security and confidentiality. And, you know, we know that's really important in the insurance industry because they have a lot of insensitive information. He is also the, uh, currently the president of the International Association of Privacy Officers, and I belong to that, so he's my fearless leader over there, and we're really thrilled that he was um, elected president. We were happy to get him there. And he is a member of the United States Department of Homeland Security uh, Securities Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. So he is basically on the Privacy Committee for Homeland Security. We're going to ask him about that t- uh, tonight and what they're doing. 
Kirk is also the editor uh, edit- on the editorial board uh, for Peppers and Rogers one-to-one report, and I have no idea what that is, so I'm going to have to ask him about that. And he sits on the Poneman Institute's Privacy Advisory Board. We've had Larry on the show a couple times, and I'm a research fellow for the Poneman Institute. Wonderful group, great things, and here he is on the advisory board. Um, He's also a member of the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee, and the section he sits on is science and technology law. So that's terrific that he's doing those kinds of things all over the place. He received his undergraduate degree in political science and history from the University of Cincinnati, and he has a master's degree in international affairs from American University in Washington, D.C., His law degree is from Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, and he's an attorney in uh, Ohio, and he's also a certified information privacy professional. So I'm excited that he came and stayed at work late tonight just to speak to us. Kirk, um, thank you for joining us. Mari, it is a pleasure to be here this evening. Well, terrific. Let's. I have to ask you a couple questions here. That I what what is the uh, Peppers and Rogers one to one report? Tell me. I, I I don't know what it is. Well, Martha Rogers and Don Peppers have probably one of the most successful uh, consulting uh, groups in the country that is that is focused on consent based opt in marketing. Their their oh. their theory is, you know. Let the customer tell you what he or she is interested in, um, and and build buckets that that work towards uh, uh, towards that end. Build buckets of data. Uh, so, for instance, you would you know if if, if people were interested in in, in red in convertibles, and they told you that you would not try to sell them you know a silver SUV uh, through you know direct mail or. Uh, or or email or whatnot. It's it's really it's a it's a it's a one to one marketing. It's, it's it's building a relationship with with your customers or those who you want to be your customers. Let them sort of tell you what they're interested in. And from a marketing perspective, the brilliance around that is you don't waste a lot of time trying to contact people who don't want to be contacted about perhaps what it is you're trying to sell them. Right. You can focus quickly on. Uh, on on the pitch, rather than trying to convince them that they're interested in you know a new credit card, they perhaps have already told you that they are interested in you know low rate credit cards with air miles attached to it. Right. So you you send them an, you know you send them their the pitch, and you go right into why this card is is good for them and why they would like it because you know it gives them ten times the amount of air miles as their regular card or something like that. From my perspective, uh, as as a privacy professional, Peppers and Rogers has a mailing list of about 28,000 uh, folks, probably 95% of whom are, are marketing professionals. Hmm. And mar- marketing professionals are the audience, I think, in the financial service industry and probably any industry where uh, who have to be educated the most about, about privacy. And probably if, if there is any conflicts, between privacy officers and anyone in their corporation, it's typically in the marketing area as 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 they come up with new and inventive ways of using data, and, and the privacy officer tries to balance that against against the privacy interests and come up with a win-win. So, for me, I I wanted to be able to you know not only for my own for my own internal marketing folks, but for marketing professionals in general, I just wanted to 
be part of a uh, of a newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter that that focuses on on privacy uh, in the marketing space. So that, that's terrific because you know I so many times I deal with um, you know security officers and privacy officers when I'm doing programs, and they always tell me that they fight with marketing because marketing wants to get everything out there, get as much information as possible, and they're trying to protect things. So you know it, it reminded me of um, you know those uh, those. Uh, you know, whether it's pre-approved offers that go out that, that they fight about or whether those hot checks, as I call them, that you get from credit cards, that security people hate those, you know, when the credit card industry sends those out without right. you even asking for them. And right. marketing people love it, you right. know. And so that one always has been a, a real fight is that, you know, they always tell me, you know, we fight with the marketing people, but the marketing people bring in the money Correct. and we don't. Correct. <laughs> and so that that's the part. But that's great. I, yeah. I didn't know. So, I, you yeah. know, opt-in is so much better than, Op- than opt-out. I have been I've been a, a true believer in opt-in. I, I, I have I've yet to be able to convince uh, uh, too many people uh, that opt-in is uh, is is good business sense, but but slowly but surely, I think people are starting to realize that um, you know it's a waste of of their time and resources to try to contact people. Uh, and and today, with with some of the uh, the laws, particularly the the, te- the telemarketing laws, where you have you know you have one opportunity, or 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 with the email with can spam, you have one opportunity to send someone a, a message, right? Either telephonically, if they if they uh, if they aren't on the on the uh, on the do not on call the app, yeah, right. But even if if they're an existing business uh, relationship, you can you can still call them uh, about certain things. So you have one opportunity before they tell you. Uh, to put them on your your corporate do not call us. If if they ask you to put be put on the corporate do not call us, obviously you can't ever call them about a new product ever again. So you have you have one opportunity before they can opt out. Make it relevant. Right? Exactly, because otherwise you, they won't want you to call again. And you and what you do you you burn up the opportunity to ever contact that person again uh, about at least telephonically or through email about a, a a new product or service. So make sure it's relevant to them. And it, and I think you know your your response rates would be you know far greater. Um, you know if you have a hundred thousand people have told you they want annuities, um, your response rate for an annuity pitch is going to be a heck of a lot lot, lot greater uh, than if you bombard you know a million people indiscriminately with with a very general pitch. So. No, it sounds good to me. I'm glad you're educating people that way. Well, we're trying. And, you know, the thing is is that I learned early on that you, you can't really fight the marketing people because, like you said, they, they do, at the end of the day, sales and marketing, you know, they pay my paycheck. Exactly. Um, it, 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 but it is a balancing. I mean, what you try to do is you try to you educate, you try to negotiate. Um, and, and now after six years of doing this, it is um, – they all get it. They understand, and 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 the process is such that that my office does review all marketing, all marketing campaigns before they before they go out and early in the process, so that we can we can modify anything, we can make changes, so that that privacy uh, enhances the the experience rather than at the last minute, you know, blowing it up. Right. Um, so you're so. not there to you're there to help them to make sure that what they send out is really going to be positive, rather than you have to take care of the mess afterwards. Exactly. I mean, we we had you know every privacy officer had the experience early on in, in his or her career, 
uh, of uh, you know campaigns or projects come to them literally at the eleventh hour, and right. you know millions of dollars maybe had been spent on something that they had to then blow up because it wasn't done right. And then and then you're raining on their sunshine. Well, you are, <laughs> you are, yeah. and and you know, and then what happens is, is that the privacy gets a bad rap. They say, well, right. it's because of the privacy people. No, actually, it's because they didn't follow the laws right. or the procedures. But you know, the the truth is sometimes uh, obscured by um, you know by the perception. So the perception is is that you know privacy blew it up at the eleventh hour. Right. Right. And that's what sticks. So it's your I, fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the so compliance I've, I've, that you. I've tried to work. I've tried to work with them rather than against them. Um, and that that's good. You have to really build a relationship because all do. the privacy officers I've spoken with, you know, it's really hard for them because they're looked at in many companies as the bad guy right. or the compliance. Oh, we got to deal with privacy officer, you know, and and that's like you know the cop. Yep. And uh, it makes it really hard, but I think if they see that you're really there to help business and, and support them, and if you can get them to come to you ahead of time like what you've been able to do, I mean, it, it really uh, shortcuts all those problems later. It does. It really does. So tell us, what were you doing before? You, you said you've been at Nationwide six years now. Is that right? Or I've actually been at, at Nationwide 18-plus years. Oh, my goodness. So I'm, I'm, I know everybody's <laughs> saying that you know we, we're, like, we're going to have 18 careers, uh, different <laughs> jobs in our career. I've had a lot of different jobs, but I've been at, at Nationwide uh, really since I, I, I started as an intern, quite frankly, right, right after, uh, right after uh, college while I was... Um, Going to law school? Well, actually, I hadn't yet. I oh. I was I was working on a PhD in political science at Ohio State. I worked in mm-hmm. I'd worked at the EPA in Washington doing public affairs work for uh, for three years while I got my master's degree, and then I I really got sort of bit by the academic bug, and I started working on a PhD. And after about one semester, I was so bored <laughs> yeah. that I started looking around for an escape. And there was this internship for the government relations office at Nationwide. So oh. I thought, well, I. I, I sort of did government relations for the government, and maybe maybe it's a fit. So I applied, and they they brought me on, and and then very shortly, I uh, the vice president of the of the office came to me and said, uh, "What do you plan to do with your PhD?" And I said, "Well, I guess I'll teach." And he said, "Well, it's about the only thing that you could do with the PhD that would really <laughs> add value." <laughs> so he said, "You know, we would like you to work here uh, with us." Full time, and it would really make more sense if if you were a lawyer, since like everybody in your chain of command is lawyers, and we work as part of the Office of General Counsel. So, at that point, he sort of mentored me and convinced me that maybe going to law school was was appropriate and correct for my career. And so, I did law school at night uh, for three and a half years, and, uh, and worked yourself through. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. It was. Uh, I did that too. Yeah, I did that too with a two-year-old. I started back, yeah, because I was a, a, a university professor. Okay. And um, so then I decided from I was on a school board, and they were always having litigate. They were always in litigation. Right. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to law school and stop this craziness and do education law, which I never ended up doing. <laughs> but um, but it did get me to go back to law school as well. So I know what that's like to work all day and go to law school at night and weekends. Plus, at and... the same time, I was <laughs> actually working as a, as the federal lobbyist for Nationwide. So I was going to D.C. every week for at least a day, sometimes two days, and trying to trying to juggle that with law school. 
Yeah. Um, plus, I had two kids, young little little kids. Yeah. Um, and I did have a very supportive wife. So and that, you wonder now how helped. you did that, right? <laughs> uh, I have. I you know, it's one of those things that if you, if you will recall, it's one of those things that at the end of the day, for me, you know, I, after the first year, I can remember sort of assessing, you know, whether I wanted to to keep going. And I I remember that I already lost. It wasn't the money. It was just it was I'd already lost a year of my life. And there didn't seem to, seem to be any any reason not to keep going forward because, you know, the the year was gone and and I was only two two years away. Right. So. Yeah. But I agree with you. I mean, I, I it seemed that looking back on it, I was uh, was so busy and had so scheduled my life. Well, see, you know that they say give give more to a busy person and they can get it done, right? <laughs> uh, that's that's been my experience. I am definitely definitely more productive the busier I am. So how did you get? How did they get you into the privacy aspect? Well, that you just... know, I, I did, working in the legislative affairs and regulatory affairs from the late '80s uh, on, obvi- obviously the um, in the insurance area in the sector in the insurance sector, we we had some sectoral laws at the state level because we we're regulated by the states, as you know. Mm-hmm. And in 1982, there there was a, a sort of a model. Privacy Act that about 16 or 17 states adopted uh, through the 80s and early 90s. So I worked on some of those, worked on confidentiality issues. I, I, I became sort of the issues manager for Nationwide, and mm. I, I started seeing this uh, confluence uh, of issues that had a common nexus, and, and it was literally, you know, I guess broadly defined, privacy. Right. And and then in we we, we bought some we bought some companies in Europe and and so I I started following and and the European directive the development of the EU privacy directive in the early in the late 80s early 90s and then uh obviously worked on HIPAA in the, in the early 90s um and, and obviously the one of the linchpins to its success successful passage was how do we deal with the privacy and security of information? So right. I, I schooled myself in in privacy and and then slowly but surely information security uh, in order to in in order to be a good advocate for for my industry and the and. Um, so it kind of evolved. It evolved, and then <laughs> and then we we fought a. Uh, we, being the financial services industry, sort of fought a 10, 11-year battle to, to have banking reform during the late 80s, early, you know, and through right. the 90s. The Modernization Act, Gramm-Leach-Bliley. Exactly. Gram leach yeah. and, mm-hmm. and ultimately, at the very end, the last year of GLB, um, the debate was, I mean, I, all of the big issues had sort of been worked out except privacy. Right. If you recall, the, uh, the Democrats really made that sort of... Uh, um, the predicate for their support, we we had to deal. You know, we had we as a nation had to deal with what do we, what do we do from a protection from a privacy perspective with all of this data that that these conglomerates are now going to be able to have and share and right and use and potentially you know in some people's mind misuse. So again, I, I worked extremely hard on that. Um, we you know, for Graham Leach Bliley, I actually was, I had been an identity theft victim back in 1996. Okay, so this is right before, you know, a couple of years before Graham Leach Bliley passed. And um, they brought me to the White House and I actually spoke on Graham on the, right before they voted for the, you know, the modernization at Graham Leach Bliley. I spoke at the White House and I had all those people sitting in the audience and 
Of course, I talked to them about opt-in, but you know what happened. That didn't happen, so they didn't right. listen to me, but I was there just before Graham leach Bliley passed. But, uh, but yeah, they, in fact, Clinton was making a big, uh, you know, deal about the, right. the privacy aspects of Graham leach Bliley, and that's why I was there. So, uh, yeah, that, that happened. Yeah, that it happened. Well, as part of my issues management, I had, uh, I had created a, a small a small working group in the mid-90s that was a cross-functional group of marketing folks, legal folks, uh, business unit and product folks, all who sort of were interested in privacy, o- over-the-water-cool sort of conversations had, had developed uh, for a couple of years, and we, we traded sort of notes back and forth about, about how this law was going to affect us. So it seemed to me that, that dealing with the issue uh, kind of in, in a cross-functional sense made sense. And then... Uh, we had a, a CEO at the time who um, who bought into the idea that that privacy was you know a an extremely important and looming issue. So he gave us a little bit of money, and actually we became a formal internal working group that advised him and his cabinet wow. about the issue. Once a year, we would come in and for five years, and we would brief our CEO and his cabinet. Uh, about the issue, how it was evolving, where we th- where we saw it going. So when GLB passed in November of '99, I was chairman of the you know, sort of only internal working group that had anything to do with privacy. Yeah, you guys were ahead of the game. And so they <laughs> anointed me as the sort of the project the project leader <laughs> to implement privacy at Nationwide, and the rest is history. Obviously, privacy didn't end with uh, with that one compliance project, and very quickly they realized that that somebody was going to have to manage and coordinate this thing full-time forever. So you became the the privacy guru by necessity. Uh, basically, right <laughs> place, right time. Yeah. You know, I mean, so much of life is... Uh, is like that, isn't it? Where you are, yeah. Let me introduce you again because there are people who will be driving by right now and saying, who is this guy? I want to know who he is. We are speaking right now with Kirk Harreth, who is not only the Chief Privacy Officer for Nationwide Insurance, but he is also the President of the International Association of Privacy Officers, and he is um, a terrific lawyer and uh, a, a great uh, he's filled with lots of great knowledge and, and can impart to us. Let's talk a little bit about some of the recent things you've done. Um, I know that Nationwide has an identity theft insurance component, and you guys just recently did a survey back in March of 2006. Let's talk about this survey and, and uh, what results came out of it. you want to give us a little bit of background? Sure, sure. Actually, let's step back even a year. Uh, our first survey was in the summer of 2005, and it, that was a general survey that was precipitated by really, a, a, I guess, a search for more information. We, we weren't sure whether or not our homeowners' policy owners were adequately covered through their homeowners' policies for the identity theft right. uh, hazard. Um, so we we wanted to do a little bit of studying of the issue and see how it how it impacted people whether or not you know we had this thing right. So we did a general study of the general population, and it, it tracked it tracked most mostly with what has been done by the FTC and others. Uh, what we what we also wanted to find uh, in afterwards was is its impact on on the minority community, um, more or, or less, 
uh, than the general population. So we did this this follow-on survey uh, that, that came out in, in February, March of, of this year. And interestingly, it it pretty much showed that there was little impact, uh, little difference in the impact uh, on on minorities. Basically, identity theft is colorblind. What it did show is that the risk to minorities tends to be a little different, and, and whereas in the general population, it tends to be credit cards, loans uh, that are at risk. In the minority community, it, it tends to be uh, checking accounts and and savings accounts and probably debit cards, I'm thinking. So it's more mm-hmm. cash-based uh, and more immediate, perhaps. They had a, a little less overall losses, uh, but they they took um, a little longer, maybe about an extra six weeks to discover uh, the problem, which is interesting because usually the longer it takes you to discover the problem, the higher your losses because right. the, the crooks are out there, um, right. you know, preying on you longer. Right. Uh, but I think it had to do, again, with probably the instruments that were being um, hijacked probably had you know, lower amounts of, of cash in them. Right. Well, if you're doing a savings account or yeah. a checking account, that's going to be you're going to be limited to whatever is in there, right. as opposed to, or whatever you can create, pretend to be in there, as opposed to credit cards, which you can go over the limit and they keep letting exactly. you go. Yeah, yeah. But, but what we also found was that the, um, let's say the primary victim, the most common victim among minorities, is a is a woman in her mid to late thirties. Uh, with at least some college education and you know, family income in the fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars range, which the family income actually tracks the general population um, almost spot on. It's you know if you look at the charts, even uh, the FTC charts, the Justice Department jar- charts, it's that uh, that is the income level that that tends to be most preyed upon. Right. So um, you're, you're looking at the middle class here. It's the middle class. It's, so it's 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 college educated uh, or or college educated. 30 to 38, 39-year-old uh, Hispanic and African-American women who tend to be uh, the biggest targets in the minority community for uh, for fraud, uh, Friday theft and fraud. So, um, and, and that's pretty interesting, too, about, the, about a woman. It's the same thing when, you know, there's a lot of women that become victims of identity theft. You know, I, I'm a good example of it. And, yep. and Linda Foley, who heads the Identity Theft Resource Center, was also a victim. And when I had spoken to law enforcement many times about this, um, and, and they're in their mid-30s to mid-40s, that's yep. pretty common. And and that's what what they say is, is that the, the people who are preying on these people are usually women about, you know, 20, in their late 20s to mid-30s, who are um, single moms, um, and they are, you know, they are usually um, people who have something often to do with drugs, like methamphetamines. Right. And um, and then they attack other women, and they all they, they don't have to face you with a gun. Right. And all they have to do is use a credit card. 
which is really pretty benign. So, exactly. you know, this crime that people don't know, you know, when you think of violent crime, you there's obviously more men in this, but in in uh, identity theft, there's often, you know, at least with the general population, it's it's pretty common to be men and women, although sometimes they say it's more men depending on the situation. But it's, it didn't really surprise me to see that it was more women in your study. It really didn't because of uh, that's pretty easy. They're pretty easy targets. Exactly. Well, our general study last, uh, last summer showed that, the you know, the, Typical uh, victim was about a 41-year-old college-educated soccer mom. Yeah, you know, in the 50 to $75,000 range as far as the family income. So, yeah, it it really again it tracked uh, in the minority community. It tended to be a little bit younger uh, victim, but you know, it it so yeah. At the end of the day, what what it showed again was that the, the issue is really colorblind. It 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 affects you know any community equally yeah and you know what what we get a lot of calls in and i speak spanish fluently and we get a lot of calls and of course i get on the phone because i speak spanish fluently and it's really harder i noticed in your study that sometimes it it takes longer for the hispanic community rather than the african-american community to clean up the mess and some of it has to do and i don't know is you know is the language you know, and dealing with writing the the myriad letters that you have to write because you have to write to the credit bureaus and you have uh, to write I everybody. Would, that would be my hypothesis. We we didn't you know, we didn't dig into a lot of the the whys, uh, which which we may in the future, or we're actually trying to maybe even get a uh, an academic institution to sort of take this study and and go forward with it. But uh, I would say that that probably is is one of the you know reasonable explanations for that right and and i know even the people that call me you know they you know if they get our book or whatever they they have a lot of trouble because they would say well can't all of the letters be in spanish because i am more fluent in spanish than i am in english and the problem is is you know if someone writes a letter to a credit bureau in spanish you know that's going to be harder because you're going to limit who's going to be able to review that and are they even going to accept it and so that that's a real problem you know i think uh that's. I think that's why the African American community perhaps found that it was easier to clean up quicker. You yep. know that they don't have the language barrier. No, I mean language is the, the, the language issue is um you, you know at, whether it's cleaning up uh, you know identity theft or uh, or even being able to to take uh, applications from uh, um, non native non English speaking uh, customers. It, the language issue, I think, for corporate America in general is is becoming an issue. Yeah. And a barrier perhaps to, you know, to getting some customers. Right, right. So. But I mean, you know, we have so many immigrants and now we're dealing in Congress with all the immigration yeah. issues, but I mean, in in California for example, we have a lot of things that are that are translated not only in Spanish, but in Chinese right. and in Vietnamese. I mean, you know, that, that's really a problem. I, I keep thinking about, like, when I travel and I speak Spanish fluently and I speak some French, when I go to Italy, when I go to France, you know, I really try and speak the language. And I just keep thinking if I was moving there, I would have to. Like right. like in Germany, for you to migrate to Germany now, you have to actually um, show that you can speak German. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, it's, I think it's a challenge. I, th- I, I think it's very hard for companies to be able to translate everything for everybody. It's just impossible. And then if you don't, are you discriminating against maybe, you know, the Filipinos versus the, the, the Hispanics? Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? It's, it's a tough one. You know what I thought was interesting, and I don't know, I guess when you, I'm looking at some of the findings that you guys found, you know, um, and I think this is important. One of them was um, about half of the victims uh, were victimized by a stranger and one third still did not know who stole their identity. Do you know what, you know, what that all meant? I wasn't quite sure how that meant because most of the time that we find, um, Unless it's a family member, most people don't know who victimized them, and the family members are only about eleven percent. Right. right. So, what 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 did you think of that? Well, you know, again, there's 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 probably almost as many questions that can be asked as some of the results um, right. as the questions <laughs> themselves. I I don't know. I you know it, it appears that it appears that in 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 many cases. People do know who actually victimized them, and I think you know one of the one of the pieces of advice that I that I give when I talk about ID theft. I know we're not going to really do that tonight uh, because you you've done that in the past. But you know, I you you tend to trust people that you know, maybe a, a down down in their you know down on their luck friend, and you you, you give them your credit card or or something. I mean, I've told people, you know, if you if you want to help a family member or a friend get back on their feet, that's fine. Pay their bills for them. Right. <laughs> don't don't give them access to to your your yeah. credit cards, to your checking account. Yeah. Uh, and I think in some cases that may be what is happening. Maybe a boyfriend yeah. uh, or a girlfriend who uh, who has uh, misused the uh, the privilege and uh, and then uh, and then absconded. And, and and that that may be true. I know, um, you know, sometimes when it says, I know when I answered some surveys, like I did for the Identity Theft Resource Center, because I had been a victim, or I look at the surveys from the Federal Trade Commission, it really depends. And I didn't see your question, but it depends on how it's asked. Because, for example, for me, I found out who the woman was. So when they asked, did you, did you learn or did you know who the person was? Well, I did find out who it was, right. but I had never met her. I had no relation to her. Yeah. So I think that it's it's kind of uh, confusing a little bit for this. And and when when you says one third still don't know who stole their identity, I would say that in most cases the people don't really know who it is. Sometimes they find out that it's you know a family member or something horrible like you know a gentleman called me and he had gotten a a healthcare worker to take care of his blind mother in the house. And of course, then she had access to the social security number, the Medicare card, all that stuff. So a lot of times it isn't even the consumer consenting to access, but because they have access in the home or because they have access um, somehow, you know, at work. Do you know what I mean? Right. That, That can even happen. So I just wondered about that. It would be really interesting because I always get worried. I guess most of the privacy professionals that that I work with that work with identity theft victims get worried that the victim will get blamed. Right. And and that is something that most of the time the victim it is totally beyond the victim's control to stop it. Oh, I I do I do I do believe that you're right and and you know and 
beyond the blame, you know, my biggest concern that I tell people is, you, you know, you need to get somebody to authenticate you to make you legitimate, you know, right. which, which is why you need the police report or some affidavit from, from right. somebody that, 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 that verifies that you are, you're a victim um, because, you know, in the financial services world, there, there are a lot of people that, you know, that claim they didn't write that check, that pay, claim they didn't take that money out of right. their, uh, with their ATM card or that use their debit card. Right. And they're, and so you, you need to distinguish yourself from the, you know, from the fraudsters. Exactly. Uh, cause, because, you know, you're almost victimized twice. You're, you're victimized by the fraudster, and then you are, you are at least looked at suspiciously until you can authenticate that you truly are a victim. Right. You're basically guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And, and that's why, you know, in the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, you know, it's so important to get that identity theft report, whether it's a police exactly. report or from the postal inspector, from Social Security Administration, or from exactly. FBI or Secret Service or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a rough one sometimes. And it's doing much better. You know, five years ago, I don't think that was the case. Uh, right. Ten, ten years ago, that clearly wasn't the case. Most local law enforcement the departments just look at this as a victimless crime. and Well, you know, also there was, uh, you know, in California, when I became a victim back in 1996, Kirk, there was no law making identity theft right. a crime in any state nor federally. So, I mean, that's literally what, what uh, I ended up doing, getting our penal code to, to establish that because that's why a victim couldn't get a police report because they weren't the victim right. under the law. So now it's true. You know, every state now has one. that We have a federal law making identity theft a crime. So, yeah, you know, we're getting there. I think so. So tell us a little bit about the insurance. You know, a lot of different companies are doing identity theft insurance. And um, and so what basically, you know, we're a nonprofit. We can't really sell this, but just, you know, well, what, tell I, I about what yours, what, your, uh, what yours is. Ours, ours is, is, the concept is the safety net and, and the, sort of the, the, the helping hand. It's a 24 by 7 call center uh, that you can call into if, if you're a victim. There is a $25,000 indemnity coverage. Um, now, that's for what, legal fees? Yeah, it'd be for legal fees, lost income if you had to take time off from work, uh, any, anything that's uh, sort of a direct damage or even, even, quite frankly, most indirect damages. If you had to, yeah, if you had to get a, a, a lawyer to help you un, un, unravel things or let, let's say you were really unfortunate and, you know, you're, you're one of these folks that... that it sometimes happens where you know someone has actually committed a serious crime in your name. Right, we've had that you, many times. Right, and you're picked <laughs> up like at an airport uh, uh, because you're on, a, you know, you're on, uh, you're on the list, and right. and they haul you off and throw you in jail in, you know, in France. Right. Um, and so you know, before <laughs> before you can use our our call center, obviously you need to get out of jail. Right. Um, so it would it would pay for any costs attenuated to that. Once you Basically, one you know for 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 the average person, they would they would call at their nationwide claims uh, service center, and the person would warm transfer them to another service center, which would take all the information. They would build an affidavit. They would they would file the police reports for you. They contact uh, they contact all your financial institutions, uh, Social Security Administration, um, the uh, any anything that is necessary to. To, to you know, put, they put fraud alerts on on your consumer reports. Um, so in, anything 
that is part of the process that we all talk about when we advise people about identity theft uh, remediation. This this service center does, and and they give you you know periodic reports, letting you know, uh, letting you know you know sort of the status of of your case. And so it's it's a case, they're caseworkers essentially, yeah. and they uh-huh. work a case, and they they make sure, sh- and, and they're not done until until you are you know are made whole again. So that's essentially what it is, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's been a a pretty successful product. I was actually one of the first one of the first policyholders, and actually had a, a little bit to do with uh, with its creation. So um, that that in a nutshell is what yeah, what so our, our coverage is. Good. So um, what else do you do inside the company? I mean, are you're you're probably there to to protect the the inside customers as well as the outside customers, right? Well, you know, it's interesting the. Yes, I work very closely with our human resources areas, and we have a privacy policy that, you know, for associates that is uh, about as strict as as it is for for customers. And about as strict, I mean, because there are there are some offers for products and services that the company has just decided uh, will go to associates, right? Right. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna email us, um, and they're going, <laughs> they're gonna send us direct mail to try to get us to buy the company's products, which seems reasonable. Uh, but from a security perspective, from but when we uh, when we use third-party administrators to, uh, to outsource certain services, uh, the the data flows go, uh, you know, they have the same strict contracts in place. We do the same very uh, strict deep due diligence of the third party's security and their privacy policies and procedures sort of sort of what you know the what what framework do they have to protect our data um, we have made the decision that in the event we had a, a, a data breach that we would uh, we would inform our associates uh, even in states where you know there, there wasn't a law on point just like we would our customers they, so it's 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 very very similar to how we treat customers, and we believe that it you, know, you can't logically or reasonably ask your associates to protect customer information at one level and and be provided with you know inferior protections themselves. So it's really just sort of a quid pro quo. Right now, do you end up doing? inside training for your HR department about, you know, we like do. do your own privacy audits for them? We do privacy audits. I have a person on my staff who's almost her entire job is doing nothing but audits and self-assessments, working with the business units to identify risk and, and then to, uh, you know, to, to make any changes if need be. We we were one of the first, we may have actually been the first uh, unit at Nationwide to do a an online training um, back in in 2000, and when we built ours, I mean there was nothing on the market for privacy. But I, I recognized that you know we needed to do education and awareness, and for 35,000 employees distributed across the world, you know across yeah. the country and even in, uh, in Europe, the only <laughs> the only economical and efficient way of doing it was was through was through the web. So right. we developed one of the one of the first and probably the most successful training 
to date at Nationwide, and, and everybody has taken it. And in fact, we have just rolled out, or we're just about ready to roll out our our, our sort of version two. Mm. Um, and as a result of our expertise, as a result of my office's expertise around around developing and uh, implementing privacy training and online training, we we've become the project management office for uh, a far more comprehensive compliance e-training program that our general counsel wanted rolled out. So, uh, so we 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 became experts in online adult education, and 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 so we now have um, what what is really kind of a neat project of working with a lot of other subject matter experts, um, and and being the sort of the the expert and the coordinator of 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 their online training. Yeah, so and everybody in, in the whole, um, all of the employees have to take this, and they just, it's like a little self-test, and then they yes. have to pass it, or yep. keep taking it until they pass it? Yes, we, we did it with, uh, with the, we have a sort of a generic privacy training, which is about 35, 40 minutes long with a little test at the end. And we also, in the HIPAA space, we, we created a, a fairly broad training, uh, depending on, and it's based upon your role, there's there's five modules, and everybody had to take module one, and then depending on yeah how sensitive how, how much sensitive information you're you're exposed exactly. to yeah uh-huh. well sales the sales folks might have to take one and three right uh, the right. marketing folks might have to take one two and three you uh, should make them take all of it <laughs> <laughs> well and you know and there are there were uh, there were several there were several people that did have to take all five modules yeah and it's a, it's about a two hour it's about a two-hour program, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah, we've we've tried to do that. And then our information security, our information security uh, areas also have done some really good training that we've that we've helped them with. It, um, it's really tough, isn't it? I mean, what a what a, a, a huge amount of stuff to learn. Not only do you have to do know your insurance products and and know what you're selling and doing, you know, comply with all Bramlage Bliley and and HIPAA, but now you have to deal with all these privacy issues. Exactly. That is, uh, you you got your you're wearing many hats within that one hat, aren't you? That is true. That <laughs> is true. And I and I I also I, I'm sort of the chief advisor to our to our security teams and what we call our information risk management area. So did you become a techie from all this? Well, you know, I, 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 I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, and I, you know, I suppose I'm, uh, I, I still, let's put it this way, I, I know what I know, and more importantly, I know what I don't know. Right, and you know what to ask. And I know what to ask and who to ask. <laughs> right. So I am, I am, I am, let's put that, I'm tech savvy. Yes. But, but I am not a, what I would consider a, a techie. Right, right. But you know enough to be able to talk with the techies. I know enough. To, I can converse with them. I, I know their lingo, and mm. and I can advise them about certain certain things they need to do and certain risks that uh, that they need to address. And I think a lot of times there is a big confusion between. Uh, or, or a blending between security and privacy, and it's really a different, it's different. I mean, you, you really need to have security to have privacy, true. but you can have security without privacy. That is, that is most true. At, at Nationwide, we, I think blending is a wonderful way of, of, of putting it. We have, on almost every project, blended my staff with the relevant information security team, because each of our business units has their own 
security team, and, and then they either dot, dotted line or, or full line matrix over to a, a vice president of information risk management. And she and I uh, are about as you know, the definition of partners, we, we partner on everything. And you collaborate, yeah. Exactly. And she reports up through, uh, through the IT system side, and I report up through the legal side. So at the management committee level, uh, we have we have two people fighting for confidentiality, privacy, and security rather than just one. Right. So you and got you got somebody to help you when you when you're arguing for things. Very very much so. And, yeah. and you are right. It is uh, you know they are more technology based. They're more uh, process oriented, and clearly the privacy is is more you know it's clearly more legal and um, and policy oriented. So. Right. Well, I just want to introduce you again if people are driving by and listening. You're listening to Kirk Harreth, who is the Chief Privacy Officer for Nationwide Insurance. And he is also the President of the International Association of Privacy Officers. And I wanted to ask you, because now I know also that you have, uh, you're sitting on the committee for the, um, uh, the Privacy Committee of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Why don't you tell us what you're doing on that? That's a fairly new committee since last year, isn't it? That, that committee... Yeah, that committee's first meeting was uh, last um, February or March. Yeah, and my buddy Joan McNabb is on that. Oh, I, Joan is wonderful. Yeah, Joan is wonderful. Yeah, she is our uh, chief of the Office of Privacy Protection in California, and I sit, I sit on her advisory board, and uh, she is just wonderful. She's about The only thing I was disappointed with that committee is she's really about the only consumer advocate, so to speak. I mean, I know you guys are all consumer uh, care for consumers, but the, everybody else on the committee is either an academic or, or business, so I was a little disappointed with that. I think that was... A little disappointing, but I'm, I'm, I want to know what you guys are doing. Well, you know, we we have we spent most of the first year trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. uh, we we had very little very little direction or charge, other than the fact that we were to advise the privacy officer and the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security around privacy and data integrity or data usage issues. So we realized early on that we were going to be more or less successful depending on how we organized ourselves. So we split ourselves up into essentially a technology committee, a data usage committee, and then um, and then another committee that looked at, at some other issues. And um, I'm on the data usage committee. And what we have done is um, our first product was uh, essentially looking at uh, at how um, how data, uh, how how data, how commercial data should or should not should or should not be used by the Department of Homeland Security, because you know the kind of the, the latest issue is you know the intel guys, um, just like marketing guys, uh, they live and die by information, right? And they get a lot of it from the government. They get a lot of it collected through you know forms and and other and other means as well. You know, in addition to all the covert stuff that. That, that you and I um, really don't even know about or aren't supposed to know about. Well, I, I mean, they have realized that, that they can do certain things and they can track people and they can track behaviors with information, you know, from consumer reporting agencies or the data companies like 
Choice point, like choice Axiom, point. Mm-hmm. right, right, right. The big guys, Lexus, Nexus. Yeah. So w- one of the the concerns really is, you know, what are the rules? Uh, what are the rules of the game? Because these these firms are not, they don't have to comply with the Privacy Act. Um, they collect information on people, and in most cases, people don't even know what information exists on them in these in these reservoirs of data. Right. Um, but the government is going to be using them, applying them, and and potentially... And it already is using them. It, it already is. And potentially, yeah. they will be impacting you somehow. So for me, you know, and I think for most of my colleagues on on my subcommittee, you know, the issue really comes down to, you know, due process. What What is what is the due process of the individual to know what, what he or she has... Um, on them out there in these in these databases, or what the government has on them, and if it's if it's not accurate, you know how how do they? What are the redress mechanisms, right? Kirk, that is such a huge issue, and and that's I just had a case that um, I we had interviewed my client from New York, Suffolk County, New York, mm-hmm. who had originally been a victim of criminal identity theft, but when the the guy went to court, they did the fingerprints and they found it was not you know the fingerprints matched. Another man, okay? Uh-huh. So the bad guy was convicted as himself, okay? My guy was just the alias, and he had even filed an impersonation statute, uh, an impersonation uh, report with the police. What ended up happening was years later, this is like 1991, this guy was convicted in his own name. Years later, my guy becomes an IT specialist, and he can't get a job for five years. And he right. can't understand, and he has no idea why. Yep. He's re- he is just going crazy. He finally comes to me, and I agreed to help him out. And I find out that, the, that a data broker um, was selling his name as the felon and, uh-huh. and, and, and the bad guy as the alias. Uh-huh. So I had to go back to the Suffolk County Courts. I had to actually write a brief. I had to go and get the documents. And I find that, indeed, the county courts had made a mistake. And then, of course, all of the data brokers are selling these errors. Right. Now, if he would have had a chance to see this uh, profile five years before, he would have you know, been able to go right then and there. Right. He had gone back to the police. They said, you're not the person. Here's here's a letter from us. Here's the fingerprints that show this isn't you. You're okay. But he didn't know that the data brokers were selling all this erroneous information. And until I came into it, basically, he couldn't even deal with it. And we have a lot of people who have errors in these data banks right. that are being sold and resold. And, um, and and that's terrifying because at least with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you can get your credit report, Kirk, and you can see if there's something wrong on there and you can dispute it. Right. And and, and you can get it fixed. Right. You you can, um, but some of the, the non-CRAs... Um, right, all the have, data brokers, right. You don't have that capability. And, you know, so our, our initial advice has been, you know, in, until, you know, until we until we figure out how to deal with the data accuracy and integrity issues that are inherent in any private database, because the government appears to think erroneously that you know, the private sector, you know, there's, a, there's always this myth that the private sector does, does things more efficiently and better than the government. Oh, dear. And the government, <laughs> you know, the government knows that its, data, that its data is often not correct. But they have this, uh, the, the myth is that, that Private sector's data, because, you know, this is how we make money, private sector data is somehow 
different, and it and it doesn't have these same problems uh, attached to it, and that's just that's just wrong. And yeah. the fact of the matter is, is in, until we figure out how to uh, provide the the due process and the uh, you know the the the, the correction the correction redress uh, right. for for these databases, um, our our advice was that the government should. Uh, should not be able to use the data, and, and really, it comes down to trying. Try, basically, that the Privacy Act should should uh, should atta- attach to any database, even private databases that 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 serve as quasi federal uh, data deposit. Now, a lot of people don't realize that the Privacy Act, the U.S. Privacy Act, basically says that there aren't supposed to be any private databases that the public doesn't know about. Right. And so by outsourcing to these large data brokers like ChoicePoint and Axiom and LexisNexis and others, they have been able to kind of skirt that, haven't they? That's true. That is true. I mean, the rules do not apply to uh, to to the private entity if they're working as a uh, as a vendor basically. Right. To the government. Well, you know, there's a lot of legislation right now um, talking about the the oversight for these data brokers. You know, um, I had I don't know if you were familiar with uh, Bill Nelson's bill S five hundred, which put together a framework which is similar to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, giving us those um, you know the fair information principles where that you have the right to see it, you have the right to correct it, you have the right to dispute it. You have the right to secure it. You have the right to limit it in, under certain circumstances, you know. And uh, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. <laughs> well, the, the problem with Congress right now is that there are so many competing bills either um, either on the exact same issue, which is sort of data breach, right, or... Uh, or uh, that that are broad and like uh, like like Nelson's bill and deal with uh, with, uh, with the issues. Yeah. Um, that I think that we basically have a stalemate because it, it, at the end of the day, what it's coming down to it appears is jurisdictional um, fiefdoms that won't won't work together because each of the chairs want to sort of be the. Yeah, they want to be the kingmaker, right? And right. and they all have slightly different interpretations of what they want to see. Their visions are a little different, but they're different enough that that the compromise, at least at this point, appears to be um, a little out of reach. So, well, what I'd like to ask you, as a member of this prestigious committee, is to ask them to set up some kind of a system that at least provides the same rights as the Fair Credit Reporting Act, or to say, okay, these guys are consuming consumer reporting agencies and they are subject to it, either something akin to it or, you know, something, you know, this whole idea of having fair information principles that came back, you know, I mean, that was developed, what, in the, in the 70s? Right. And um, so I'd like to see, I just want to put in my vote <laughs> that, that you know, you could ask for that. Because you're not going to stop the government from using it. They're already re- using it. I don't, you know, I've read tons of stuff about what they've been doing. And, and right. I don't think they're going to stop. Well, they, they probably won't. And, you know, in, in many cases, uh, you know, the, the purpose for, their, for the usage is, is legitimate. And, and for me, uh, I, I think, you know, the balance between 
the security interest and the privacy interest is right. very similar to the balance uh, that we talked about earlier between the sort of the economic slash marketing interest and the privacy interest. Um, you know, and, and you have to look at sort of do, do the you know, do the benefits outweigh the costs. Um, the government will continue to probably tip the balance towards towards security. Yeah. Um, and again, I. We are advisory and 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 have you know very little outside of uh, outside of uh, yeah. You're not a regulatory per- commission. Yeah. We're, we're we're really just persuasive, yeah. right? Well, I mean, you could do it. You sound pretty persuasive. We have a bully pulpit, and so we we can. And, and I well, I mean, we like Secure Flight, which was the. Wait, I got to stop you because my husband's like putting this thing like around his around my neck here. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know what? We're going to have to have you on again. I want you to just give your website real quick. Well, and Nationwide's so- website is www.nationwide.com, and there are it is a it's a full service financial services firm, uh, Fortune ninety nine company. We offer. Uh, about any product or service you can possibly think of uh, to protect yourself and your family. It's a great website, and you've got some good tips for identity theft and and spam and all sorts of good stuff. So I'm going to invite you back next year so you can tell us all the good things that you've been doing, and I hope that's okay with you, President. I I would enjoy that. And thank you so much for joining us. You have been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You were just listening to Kirk Harreth, who is the General Consul and Chief Privacy Officer for Nationwide, an insurance company. And I want to thank Lloyd. Uh, This is 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the net at KUCI.org. Make sure you listen next week at 5 to 6 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. And I'm Mari Frank, and you been uh, listening to me and Lloyd has been our great engineer. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.